Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. This is another special episode of Housing Wire Daily focused on the Sitzer Burnett class action trial in Kansas City this week. And I'm talking to managing editor James Kleiman about the testimony of some of the defense witnesses, including Dave Stevens, Stefan Swanepoel, and Lawrence Wu. First, here's a word from our sponsors. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire with Melinda Wilner, Chief Operating Officer at UWM. Melinda, what resources does UWM have available for people who are looking to join the Wholesale Channel? We have a lot of great resources that are available. In fact, we have a, a large size team solely dedicated to getting mortgage brokers into the industry. So whether it's starting your own brokerage, joining an existing brokerage, converting from a retail loan officer over to a wholesale loan officer, we have a whole host of things available. Um, there's a, We have teams that are dedicated to support even afterwards that will help with things like compliance and licensing, all that fun stuff, as well as marketing strategies and helping brokers with training. So we are really, really well-versed on uh, getting people into the wholesale channel and a great place to start. And we have a great website, beingmortgagebroker.com, with a lot of information on how to get started. So many options. Thanks, Melinda. And listeners, find out more, as she said, at beamortgagebroker.com. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back. Great to have you back. You have been sitting all week in the trial, the Sitzer Burnett trial, um, for us so that you can give us up to the minute reporting. And Brooklyn Han has been using those insights in her coverage. And also, um, our listeners get to hear directly from you what's been going on in the courtroom. So we had some really interesting things happen over the last couple of days. I wanted to talk to you, um, first about one of the witnesses that came through, which Lawrence Wu, who's the president of the National Economic Research Associates, and he really, you know, contradicted some testimony um, last week from plaintiffs, right? So tell us a little bit about what happened with him today. Yeah. So last week we had a, an expert witness for the plaintiff, uh, and, and his name is Craig Shulman. He is an economist. And um, Mr. Shulman was responsible for a number of very important um, evidentiary pieces for the plaintiffs, the first of which is he created an analysis to determine what the damages should be should the jury find uh, in, in favor of the plaintiffs. And, and at present, it's about $1.9 billion for uh, the NAR and Keller Williams and the various um, home services uh, defendants that were named. Uh, in, in addition to that, he also put together kind of an interesting thought exercise, which is what they call, I, I believe, in the legal world, but for uh, and, and but for is, okay, let's essentially take this scenario, the NAR, clear cooperation policy, it is no more. It is, it is banned, it is stricken, it is, you know, it is dead in the water. What happens? What does the world look like if this rule is not in place? And, and Shulman theorizes, hypothesizes, I should say, that um, it would probably, in America, look a lot more like the Australian real estate market. In Australia, they do not have such a rule. And as such, um, Shulman believes that buyer brokers would 
not be very prominent. There would be far fewer of them that sellers would not be paying for, um, you know, cooperating agents, right? So buyer brokers in that case. And of the few who would be in the game, so to speak, um, their compensation would need to come from the buyer. And so that was a major um, component of his testimony. And Lawrence Wu, who is also an economist, who is an expert in antitrust and, um, and, and has testified in front of Congress and is a fairly well-known figure um, in, in this space, uh, essentially says, look, the Australian real estate market is nothing like that of the U.S. This is not a good comparable. And here are the reasons why. Uh, and the first is that um, the laws are completely different in Australia. They typically have what's called an auction system where, you know, one day, however long it is, eight hours, 12 hours, whatever, I don't know personally, um, but people go to the house and, and they put their bids in. And at the end of the day, you find out who ended up buying the house, right? And in Australia, a lot of lawyers and CPAs handle quite a bit of the work that in America that is handled by real estate brokers and agents. Um, and then the other component of it just being that, um, you know, the laws are totally different as well. However, if one does want to take a look at this idea that the cooperation rule is not in effect, you don't have to go to Australia. You don't have to go to a different hemisphere. You can look right here in the U.S. because there are two fairly prominent markets that do not have this rule, that do not have the NAR rule. The first is uh, in, in Washington state, and it is the Northwest MLS. They do not have the clear cooperation rule. So one does not need to um, you know, follow the policy that the NAR through the various uh, realtor-owned uh, MLSs and associations does effectively, according to the plaintiffs, enforce. So that's the first one. The second, probably better known to most people, which is New York. Uh, so New York City, REBNY, the Real Estate Board of New York, that is basically the trade organization that runs uh, you know, real estate matters in the city. They do not have this NAR rule for you know, transacting in, in New York. And what Wu argues is in both of these markets – even without this rule, there is a 100% or 99% um, instance of seller agents compensating buyer agents. And that buyer agents are every bit as prominent, every bit as prevalent in these marketplaces, and that commissions are still going through. And the reason is actually quite simple, because even if the NAR rule were not in place in markets wherever, there would still be incentives for seller agents to incentivize buyer agents, right? To motivate them to bring buyers to the table. And so even in a world in which this rule, technically speaking, doesn't exist, practically speaking, he doesn't think much at all would change. And, and I, I thought that was extremely interesting uh, and, and um, I think worthy of a lot more discussion. So it's interesting to me that so far, you know, um, it seems like they're, you know, obviously at the heart of this is like, is there a conspiracy? And number two, it it feels like the plaintiffs really want to go out of their way to say buyer's agents don't bring any value, which, um, you know, 
the conspiracy part, you know, people have definitely taken on. But to me, it's the it's the part where they're like, oh, buyer agents don't have any value, though. That is so interesting to me. How do you prove that? Because it depends on the it depends on the transaction. It depends on the person. It depends on the state. It depends on so much. Yeah. And it depends on your own perspective, Tira. And so when I bought my home in, in Pennsylvania, I didn't actually personally find that my buyer agent was especially valuable in that transaction. I thought my loan officer was was a lot more valuable for me personally. Now that is not the case in every situation. You know, buyer agents are still responsible for handling negotiations and walking people through inspections and dealing with uh, you know kind of the the mortgage financing component of it as well. They do a lot of work on on you know that side of the deal in many cases, not in all cases. I I don't agree with the argument that. Um, Buyer agents do not provide value. I think they absolutely do provide value. They provide professional representation, which, you know, should be a benefit to the majority of of home buyers. Now, how much value, whether their value is weakening in the age of the internet, in which, you know, everybody has the ability to find, you know, this curated list of homes that they may potentially want to buy, um, you know, there, there's certainly a lot of disagreement between the witnesses over, um, you know, has the internet made this easier? Is the work for buyer brokers easier than it used to be? Or has it made it more difficult because there, there's so much information, right? It's an overload. It's it's overwhelming. And the buyers themselves don't know how to navigate the process. And, and a lot of the information on the internet I am told, I have never seen any incorrect information on the internet before, but I'm told that occasionally things are not right. Things are inaccurate on the internet. And so, you know, that that's just another thing that, that the buyer brokers, shocking, I know, yes, that the buyer broker needs to sort out, right? They're the, the, the experienced, um, you know, person in the room who can tell you, you know, this is true, this is not true. This is listed. This is not listed. This was taken off the market. Oh, that has a radon problem or, oh, you know, that that's in like a super fun site area. Um, you know, so that that's really the, the benefit, I think, in a lot of cases of having the buyer agent. The bigger question that you asked, and I think it's a really important one to get into, is this idea of the conspiracy, because that is central to the case of the plaintiffs. There is no case without establishing that there is a conspiracy. And if you listen to the plaintiffs, if you listen to their witnesses, they say, one, isn't it interesting that none of these companies that almost entirely rely on the business of getting commissions tracks commissions or studies the impact of commissions it it sure is interesting that the the you know tenant of their business model is just a oh like i don't know yeah i mean sure we 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 uh we know that our agents get commissions and yes we receive you know a percentage of those commissions when the agent does the business and all but like we don't tell them how to do their business we don't tell them how to negotiate with clients we are very hands off we are you know almost almost like a pass not even a passenger like like in in the trunk of the car practically, right? Like they're not, they're not even, you know, um, involved on any basis on, on commissions. Right. And, and I, I think that's very, I think by design, the real estate industry has all of these different layers and all of the, the 
options of having plausible deniability to say, oh, we have nothing to do with training. We have nothing to do with commissions. These are independent contractors. They do whatever they want. And we are merely here to provide them, you know, certain resources and, and, uh, you know, marketing, uh, tools like the use of the Berkshire Hathaway name, right, for example. And but when it comes to the nuts and bolts of actually making the money and how it's divvied up and how they actually do that, um, we we have a very casual relationship at best um, to that part of the business. And and the NAR doesn't tell us what to do. We don't even tell our, our agents what to do. These are local decisions by the local brokerage, right? Uh, of which we have 300 of them or 400 of them or whatever. And like they're independent companies, they do what they do and we do what we do. And what we do is not to tell them what to do. Right. We were just, we're, we're just a bunch of holding companies with, uh, with, uh, you know, a, a couple bits of advice and, and, uh, you know, maybe a mortgage company attached or a title company. But at the end of the day, like, you know, they, they work with the agents, not us. It's the MLSs and associations that tell them that they need to abide by these rules uh, for, you know, clear cooperation, uh, you know, compensating buyer agents or buyer brokers rather. And, um, and, and that's just a totally different thing. And the other part of that though, that I think is absolutely true and, and should be stressed in coverage. And when we do have future discussions about it is these practices, forget about the rule, forget about the codified NAR rule for a second. These practices have been going on since the late 1800s. This is not a new phenomenon. This didn't just occur in 1996 when the NAR changed the previous rule and said, okay, this is now how we are going to ensure that, um, you know, that we're creating an efficient marketplace and, you know, everybody's transacting in, in a smart and, and ethical way. This has been going on for a very long time, literally more than a century. And the reason that it goes on still to this day with remarkably little change is probably because, according to some of the witnesses, it just makes good business sense. It's just smart to incentivize the other party in the deal to make some money, to bring buyers to the table. It makes good business sense to you know operate um, in, in such a manner. It's not because the NAR decided in 1996 to you know tweak a rule. We do it because we make more money because the buyers don't have the funds available to pay or to afford as expensive a house because they can roll this into financing essentially, right? And because the seller is going to get a better price because they have more eyes on the property, right? And so everyone in their view, wins with this system. And so why would you change that system regardless of whether the NAR created a rule or not? This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with Ryan Marshall, CEO and founder of Equity Protect, to talk about a very specific and growing kind of fraud risk. Ryan, how does Equity Protect prevent deed fraud from occurring? So we've successfully devised a range of methods that harmonize the elements that exist. So certain laws, certain constraints and customary policies that occur within title companies and the recorder's offices. Our approach combines a multi-factor authentication, very similar to one that you would find if you're logging in and out of your bank account, 
an authenticated transaction hyperledger layer and a newly crafted and copyrighted property notice form that we serve as a public security lien. So in essence, our service parallels similar to a credit lock that you would find with your credit bureau. Property owners retain absolute control and they alone are the only authority that can unlock or lock their property to any subsequent transactions. Ryan, thanks for letting us know about that. Listeners, you can find out more information about deed fraud and how to prevent it at equityprotect.com. And and that was really the the heart of what both Swanepoel and uh, Wu said, right? They were brought in to, to say, there's no conspiracy here. Yeah, and, and Dave Stevens as well. You know, I mean, he, he doesn't believe that there's any conspiracy here. Uh, he testified a little bit more on, on kind of the mortgage housing finance side of, um, you know, the, the discussion. But but certainly, I, I will say in in defense in defense of the plaintiff, I guess, I don't know, um, in, in support of the plaintiff's arguments. So we talked about the Northwest MLS spread. We talked about the Redney RLS, which is basically their version of the MLS, which, uh, for those curious, has its own intriguing saga that spans quite some time and is is such a hot mess uh, because it's New York real estate. It has to be right. Uh, but, but anyway, getting back to the point here. So let, let's talk about those two MLSs and this idea that 100% or 99% of the seller agents are still providing compensation to buyer agents, buyer brokers, rather, I should say. It it does directly go to the broker, not the agent, uh, just to be clear legally. Um, Okay, but the way it works in the state of Washington is with this rule, so there's no NAR rule. However, a buyer agent does not need to bring a buyer to a property if they are not receiving compensation. So even if you write zero or a penny or a dollar or whatever in, in, you know, on, on the little uh, box in your, your buyer disclosure form, they have no obligation, legally speaking, in Washington to bring you to that property. Let's look at New York. In New York, according to Rebney's rules, both the buyer agent and the seller agent need to split the commission equally. Now that commission could be a dollar. It could be a penny. It could be a hundred bucks, whatever that, that is absolutely the case. However, these are basically very, very, very similar rules to the NAR rule that is not technically in place in these markets. So is it any wonder that, um, you know, we still see, very, very, very high participation rates with buyer agents uh, and and commissions not really changing from what we can tell. Now, the studies here did not go into, um, you know, whether commissions dropped as an effective rate, right? Like we we don't have that number. Um, I would venture a guess as to say no, because really, if you look at it, not a lot has practically speaking changed. Um, And, and, Another discussion point here that I think is worth noting is that um, Mr. Wu did an analysis where he looked at, um, I believe it was all offers between 2014 and 2020 in the state of Missouri and found that, um, you know, uh, between 22 and 33% of those offers did change 
uh, at some point there was negotiation, which suggests that there is no conspiracy here because people are negotiating. They know that they can negotiate these commissions throughout that process. So it's another um, you know, argument, uh, another data point for the defense that is essentially there is no conspiracy here. People do negotiate. There is no price fixing, even though there are clusters of different rates, right? So like, yes, in certain areas, you're going to see a 3%-ish rate, like in Kansas City, where we are, I believe it was 2.98%. And that was the average commission. In St. Louis, it was 2.68%, right? In other areas, but that was consistent. And so if there were price fixing, all of these brokerages have different entities, different you know offices and agents in these various areas of the state, they would be the same, right? They would try to but no, it's because all local markets are local markets. You know, I hate to be redundant here, but but they operate differently. You know, the St. Louis market is not like the Kansas City market, as we can see from the data. And and so it's the local agents that are making the decisions. You know, what is an appropriate commission? What is acceptable? It's not that the rule has created, uh, you know, a, a commission standard that is uniform across these different areas. And so that that's the argument that uh, that Lawrence Wu made. And I, I think it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty compelling argument personally. So the plaintiff's uh, lawyer, Ketchmark, right? He came, he came back on that um, information and said it was false. He, he uh, you know, said, oh, he's been working with the defendants. What was that like in the, in the courtroom today? Yeah. Lawrence Wu is a very experienced uh, economist who has been in quite a few courtrooms as well. He's provided testimony in a lot of antitrust cases. He's testified in front of Congress. He's not one to, um, you know, he's, he's not a shaky witness. He's, he's very confident in what he says. He's very deliberate and he speaks to the jury. He doesn't speak to the audience or the, the attorney, which is um, a, a really smart tactic. Uh, but even he seemed a little bit rattled by the questioning of, of uh, Michael Ketchmark. Michael Ketchmark basically comes in and says, one, um, a lot of the data that you cited here is is faulty data, is bad data, because that's data that was provided by the defendants, and it was so messed up, so bad, that we had to get an order from the court to send us new data because it was so bad. And yet you're sitting here today trying to mislead the jury by telling them that, you know, all, all of these things are, um, you know, true, and, and, and we don't know it to be true because the data is not reliable. That's the first thing. The second is he says... You're sitting here on this witness stand. You are paid by the defense. You are paid by home services. You are paid by Keller Williams. You are paid by NAR. You have a vested financial interest in in what you say. And you have been meeting with the lawyers. You've been preparing with them. The testimony, the presentation that you provided was done in collaboration with the attorney's are you independent? Is this your work or are you collecting a paycheck and, and, you know, getting up here and, and telling the jury uh, misleading information about a case that, you know, has, has very high stakes, right? Like we're talking about a $2 billion potential judgment here almost. It's, it's $1.9 billion. And um, certainly the, the defense did not take kindly to this line of questioning. And, and Mr. McGill, the attorney for Berkshire Hathaway Home Services affiliates uh, on redirect said, let's talk about Mr. Shulman then. Was he not paid? He did 6,000 hours of work for this case. You better believe that he was paid, right? And and second, would it be unusual for an expert witness to 
discuss the case, to discuss the legal strategy with the attorneys before presenting? No, of course not. Like that's, that is bog standard in, in a case, especially one that's in, you know, U.S. District Court, right? They don't just say like, hey, Brian, like, uh, yeah, you're coming in and testify in three weeks. Like, just make sure you don't say anything untrue. But otherwise, we don't need to go over anything. We don't need to have any discussions. I, I mean, it's, yeah, certainly, I, I think, not very credulous. So, yeah, I, I mean, he's trying to, Mr. Ketchmark is trying to paint this witness as unreliable and not independent and just, parroting whatever the defense attorneys want him to say. Um, I, I I think that he, he had a lot of very credible points. I think that a lot of his testimony will be well considered by the jury. Um, and it's, it's going to be really interesting. Tomorrow was the last day of testimony. So Keller Williams is going tomorrow. And then this might be wrapped up Monday or Tuesday. Appreciate you doing this hard work of being there in Missouri, Kansas City, uh, uh, giving us all the information. And we look forward to more reporting. We have now made a a whole place on our website where people can find the uh, commission lawsuits. So all of it is consolidated in one place on our homepage, housingwire.com. Thanks so much, James. And we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.